This morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. Our, our section is verses 4 through 12, but we're going to begin reading in verse 2 for context. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. This is God's word for us today. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May we be blessed this morning by remembering who we are in Christ. One of my favorite books to read to the kids when they were little, we don't read this one as much anymore, was The Squire and the Scroll. It's about a, a peaceful kingdom that had a lantern of pure light until a wicked dragon came and stole it. And, and night after night goes to retrieve this lantern of pure light and none return. And finally, the king gets his most trusted knight and he sends him to retrieve it. And this knight was strong and brave with armor and a sword and a shield. The knight took with him his humble little squire. He didn't have armor or a sword. He wasn't physically impressive, but he had a scroll that his parents had used to teach him how to be wise and how to guard his heart. And along the way in the story, the knight and his squire encounter many traps and snares and the words of the scroll protect them and they give them wisdom. But the powerful knight refused to listen. They came into a cave with these gems and diamonds and, and the scroll was saying, guard your eyes. But the knight said, I don't need some scroll to tell me what to do. And he was seduced by these gems and diamonds and was himself turn to stone. And we're left in the story with this humble squire, with his scroll, walking through many tests and trials, making it finally 
to the dragon where he uses the scroll to conquer him. He rescues the lantern, returns it to the kingdom, marries the king's daughter, and lives happily ever after. What a great story. A happy ending. And I love the story because it's so like the kingdom of God. It's just contrary to the world's values. It surprises us. It's, it's contrary to what we would expect. It, the story is focused on internal character and not external qualities. It's a great lesson for kids. It's a great lesson for us. And it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the password to this sermon is kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. What Jesus values in his disciples is not what the world values. And as we begin with these Beatitudes, they are surprising to us. They're contrary to where we think a sermon on being a disciple of Jesus would begin. Because in this kingdom, in our text this morning, Jesus highlights these core virtues, these inner qualities that set his disciples apart. In this sermon, Jesus is going to get to many applications, how we live and how we treat others and how we give and how we pray. But he begins in our hearts. And he keeps going back there over and over and over because everything we do is an overflow of our hearts. And the Beatitudes are about the heart of a disciple. It's Discipleship 101. It's where it all begins. It's where we should begin as followers of Jesus and where we should go back to time and time and time again. I think the main point I want to grasp from all these Beatitudes this morning is life in the kingdom begins in the heart. It begins in the heart. We have a pattern here we, we, we saw last week. Each one of these begins with blessed. Last week, Bill taught us that a good translation of this word is congratulations. Congratulations, you are blessed. You are happy. You are fortunate. The emphasis is on God being the one who blesses us, who does this work in our hearts. These are not laws that we have to obey. They are a proclamation from Jesus. If you are his disciple, this is what God has done in your heart. So we have eight blessings, eight core virtues of being a disciple of Jesus. Bill covered the first one last week, so poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. So we're going to hit the rest of the seven this morning. So seven core virtues, seven blessings, seven proclamations about you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number one, a disciple mourns. A disciple mourns. Look at verse 4 once again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It sounds like an oxymoron. When we think of mourning, we think of death. We think of grieving 
lost. You have to remember that these beatitudes are spiritual in nature. This is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It is a spiritual kingdom. And he is talking about mourning spiritual death which is what sin does. It leads to spiritual death and separation from God. Sin is our enemy. Sin is opposed to God. It fights against God. Sin is destructive. It ruins lives and families and relationships and friendships and communities. And you see the effects of sin. And he said, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. When we see sin for what it is, it grieves us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his studies in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I cannot help but feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. Coupled with that, of course, is a failure to understand the true nature of Christian joy. There is the double failure. See, these things are connected. If we lose the doctrine of sin, if we stop calling sin, sin, and start redefining it according to our culture, then we lose mourning over sin. We lose grieving sin. And we also lose the depth for which Christ died for our sins, which is where true joy comes from. These things are connected. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. When Paul cries out in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is a disciple of Jesus and he is grieving the depth of his sin. He grieves over it. But then he sees how great the deliverance and salvation is in Jesus Christ. And it brings him this inexpressible joy. So he goes from, O wretched man that I am, to thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is blessed from mourning over his sin. Jesus says here is that those who mourn their sin are happy people. They are blessed. Someone who mourns over their sin is going to turn from it. They're going to begin to hate it, and they're going to turn away from it. And when they turn away from their sin, they are going to find waiting for them a gracious Savior who will deliver them from their sins. They're going to find there is a Savior ready to forgive them, and they're going to become Christ-honoring, gospel-centered, joyful people. Jesus says, if you mourn over your sin, congratulations. This is life in the kingdom of God. Number two, a disciple is meek. Look at verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, again, this is so countercultural. Our culture does not value or reward the meek. They think the kingdom belongs to the strong and the powerful and those who belittle their enemies. They value a self-confident 
person, the self-made man or woman, the self-assured person. But Jesus' kingdom is different. His disciples are meek. What does that mean? We think of meekness as a personality trait. Someone who is naturally gentle and quiet and nice or a, a peaceful person. Someone who is easygoing. Remember, this is a spiritual quality. It's not about personality. The meekness Jesus speaks about is produced by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's a work of God in us. A meek person is humble. It's an absence of pride or self exaltation or trusting in oneself or one's accomplishments. And you can see there's a natural progression to what Jesus is teaching here. Discipleship 101. We're poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin. And it, it, then we are meek because it's a true assessment of who we are apart from Christ. It's an assessment of ourselves to be meek is to say, this is who I would be if it wasn't for Jesus Christ in my life. I think a great biblical example which helps us is Numbers chapter 12 about Moses. That actually says in Numbers 12 that Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Well, what, what made him so meek? Well, the scene in Numbers 12 is Miriam and Aaron are accusing Moses. And they're saying, has, has God only spoken to Moses? Who made you the leader? That's a good question. There's an answer to that question. And Moses could have defended himself. Moses could have pulled out his stat sheet. He could have handed them his resume and said, this is why I'm the leader, you know? Uh, God spoke to me from the burning bush. I confronted Pharaoh. God met with me on the mountain and gave me the Ten Commandments. I made water come out of the rock. I parted the Red Sea. Mic drop moment right there. But, but he doesn't do any of those things because Moses was meek. He didn't defend himself. He didn't list all of his accomplishments. He was humble. And what actually happens in Numbers chapter 12 is actually God comes down and defends Moses. He comes down and defends him because Moses was meek. Meekness is when Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Meekness is John the Baptist saying, he must increase and I must decrease. These are the ones Jesus says shall inherit the earth. This is what defines his disciples. It's the squire with the scroll who kills the dragon and wins at the end of the day. Because he doesn't do it by his own strength or power or might. He trusts in God and his word and in his promises. If you come to the Lord with empty hands and you're poor in spirit and you mourn over your sin, then you will be meek and you are blessed. He says, congratulations, you are meek. You're going to inherit the earth. Number three, a disciple hungers and thirsts. Look at verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
for they shall be satisfied. I really like how Jesus gets us. He understands what he wants to communicate about what we desire and what we crave. He uses the analogy of our hunger. I'm sure when Jesus told his disciples that he was the bread of heaven, they were thinking, hey, did he mention bread? You know, like I could use some bread right now. It's just how they thought. And so he uses this analogy of our natural appetites. And remember, this is spiritual in nature, okay? This is a spiritual kingdom. He's using this analogy, and there's an irony here, like there is in each one of these teachings. There's a spiritual aspect to what he's saying. Us, it's, it's ironic that blessed are those who mourn, or blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the hungry is not usually we think of as being a blessing, Our goal is not to be hungry all the time. We do all we can to avoid being hungry. We don't pursue hunger, but part of being a disciple, part of what Jesus does in us as his followers is he creates this hunger and this thirst inside of us for righteousness. That's the spiritual aspect. We don't hunger and thirst for wealth and power, and fame, or ease, and pleasure. We want righteousness. That's what we crave, because we know that's where true joy and satisfaction can be found. That's where we're going to be satisfied. That's where we're going to be filled up is when we get that righteousness that we seek from God. Nothing else will satisfy us like His righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is the opposite of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They tried to establish a righteousness of their own. They thought that by all their works and all their rules and all their obedience that they could make themselves righteous. And they didn't hunger and thirst for a righteousness from God because they already thought they were righteous in themselves. A disciple of Jesus craves a righteousness from God because they mourn over their sin and they're meek and they recognize, I don't have any righteousness in myself. It's just like when we hunger and thirst, we need something from outside of us to satisfy us. We don't have the resources inside of ourselves to satisfy our hunger and thirst. We need food and we need water and when we crave righteousness, we don't have the resources inside of ourselves to make us righteous. So we crave a righteousness from somewhere else, from God. And that's what Jesus says he blesses his disciples with. A righteousness not their own. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For those who mourn their sin, who crave 
to be right with God. He provides the righteousness of Christ and He gives it to us. He takes all of our sin and He transfers it to Jesus Christ and He takes the the righteousness of Jesus and He gives it to us as a blessing. Jesus is saying, he's, He's pulling His disciples away and He's saying, congratulations. You crave righteousness. You're going to be satisfied. You are going to receive a righteousness from God. Congratulations. You see, you see the depth of these beatitudes. When we turn them into laws, we must obey. We can never attain them in ourselves. When we see this is a spiritual kingdom, these are proclamations from Jesus to us. Man, there is depth. There is justification. We're going to see there's regeneration. This is discipleship 101, who you are in Christ. You have the righteousness from God that comes by faith. Number four, a disciple is merciful. A disciple is merciful. Look at verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This one here, this beatitude seems to be a turning point. The first four are all about our need, our desire for God and the gospel, our need for Him and our need for His righteousness. And now this characteristic of a Christian is a result of the first four. Do we really embrace our desperate need for forgiveness, for grace, for righteousness from God. Because if we do, we're going to be a merciful people. Again, this is a heart disposition. It's not some law that's saying, if you're not merciful, you're not going to receive mercy. He's saying, you have received the mercy of God and you, my disciples, will be a merciful people. It's all about how we view and treat others, our heart towards them. The self-righteous are not merciful. They are exacting and condemning and they're always making you feel inferior. They're not merciful if they're self-righteous. And Jesus' disciples are to be merciful because it reflects the nature of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. You may remember in the Gospels, there is this scene where there is this invalid who Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He couldn't walk for 38 years. For 38 years, he was confined to a mat, had to be carried, set on this mat, was a beggar. He he was dependent on others for 38 years, and Jesus had mercy on him and healed him. And what's so revealing about this scene is the response of the Pharisees. They said, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Basically, it's not lawful for you to be healed today. Get back down on your mat. They could care less about this man. 38 years, and he is healed, and they tell him, get back down. This is not 
lawful. They are self-righteous. They lack mercy because they're not poor in spirit. They don't mourn their sin. They're not meek. They're not thirsting for righteousness. And so they tell him, put down your bed and get back on it. And I love the man's response. He says, the man who hold me, who, who healed me, the man who healed me, he told me to take up my bed and walk, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going back down on it. I'm going to walk today. I love the mercy of Jesus. And as disciples, we rejoice. We hear that, and we celebrate with that man. It's the Sabbath. You've been healed. Praise the Lord. How we treat others is a reflection. It's a mirror of how God treats us. Jesus says, you've received mercy from God. The poor in spirit, you've mourned, you've craved righteousness. He's been merciful to you. Shouldn't we be merciful to others? If we think God is harsh and demanding and exacting, then we require that of others. But if we know, as Psalm 103.8 says, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, then that's how we're going to treat others. We're going to be merciful to them. Jesus says, congratulations to the merciful for you have received the mercy of God. You get it. You're merciful. You're my disciple. You're my follower. A disciple is merciful. Number five, a disciple is pure in heart. Look at verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, he's always focused on the heart. The religious leaders at the time, they were focused on obedience and externals, cleaning the outside of the cup. Jesus is concerned about the inside, cleaning the inside of the cup. And as we've already seen, if our greatest problem is our sin that resides within us, then a pure heart is the solution we need. Our aim as disciples is not just outward change, but inward holiness. We don't want an external show of religion. We want to be changed from within. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's desperately sick. There is a cancer inside each one of us and it resides in our hearts and it flows out into everything we do. We are desperately sick and we feel it because we mourn our sin. And I think many times when we read the Beatitudes, we hit this one, and our first thought is, but I'm not pure in heart, and I'm never going to be pure in heart. How can I be blessed when I see this sickness inside of me coming from my heart? Again, I think this, this, this comes back to how we're reading and how we're listening to this sermon from Jesus. This is not about ethics. It's not about laws to obey. It's, it's a pronouncement of blessing about being in the kingdom of Christ. It's a spiritual kingdom. Everyone who trusts in Christ is Jesus' disciples, those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who trust in Jesus Christ, their hearts are purified. Jesus says, 
You have been given a new heart. You are pure in heart. Not because of your obedience, not because of your works, but because I've done this work inside of you. We cry out with Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And He answers us. And He cleanses our hearts from sin and shame and guilt. He purifies us. Jesus declares, you crave righteousness, I'm going to make you righteous. You mourn your sin, I'm going to give you a new heart and cleanse your heart. This is part of the blessing of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Jesus' kingdom has come. It's a spiritual kingdom and part of being in this kingdom is being born again and given a new heart. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36, 26. They were looking forward and God told them, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And the Holy Spirit comes and gives us a pure heart. And throughout our lives, we, we continue to experience that and grow in that through sanctification. But he tells us, I've given you a new heart and it's soft. And it's responsive to God's word. And it understands. It's what Bill was, was sharing from the prophetic mic this morning. You know, he's opened our eyes. We understand. We're not stiff-necked. He's softened our heart. He's given us a pure heart. And there's this amazing promise with it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the one thing we don't have is holiness. Our hearts are desperately sick and they lack the holiness God required to see Him. So Christ, through His Holy Spirit, gives us new hearts. He gives us a pure heart so that we can see the Lord. I just read this and I thought there's nothing like being a disciple of Jesus. There's nowhere else you can go. There's no other religion. There's no other book. There's no other Savior who can do this inside of you. There's nothing you can do. There's no list you can keep that's going to change your heart. This comes from being a follower of Christ. He alone does this inside of us. And these Beatitudes, they are this proclamation to his disciples. So if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a disciple of Christ, these should encourage you and remind you, this is what God has done. This is who I am. But they're also, they're also an invitation. Because as we learned last week, he, he pulled his disciples away. But we have this written for us today. And if you're here this morning and you're aware my heart is desperately sick. My heart has not been changed. I, I, I haven't been born again. I don't have this new heart. This, this, this is an invitation for you this morning. You can cry out to God. You can follow right along with these verses. I'm poor in spirit. I bring nothing to you today, Lord, and I'm grieving over my sin. I see I've sinned against you. And I have nothing to stand on. And, and I crave a righteousness from God. It's an invitation to cry out to God for mercy. And He loves answering that prayer. He can create in you right now a clean heart. 
He can make you born again so that you receive this blessing from him. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. When he does this inside of you, you'll get to be with the Lord for all eternity and you will see him face to face. Congratulations. You have been given a new heart. Disciple is pure in heart. Number six, I have two more. Number six, a disciple is a peacemaker. Peace. What does this mean? Peace is, hard, is a hard thing to maintain in this world. Peace is fragile. It's constantly under attack in the world at large, between nations, personally, in our relationships, and at work. Peace is a hard thing to maintain. I read this week about the Kellogg Pact. In 1928, there was a pact signed by most nations in the world. It was called the Kellogg Pact because it was proposed by Frank Kellogg, who was the U.S. Secretary of State. It was after World War I, and it had the goal of eliminating war in this world. So it was a pact that renounced war as an instrument of national policy And all these nations agreed to end international disagreements through peaceful means. So they all agreed, no more war. We're going to do this through peaceful means. It was a great idea. I mean, who doesn't desire world peace, you know? Uh, I mean, every Miss America pageant, she desires world peace, and we all agree with her. Yes, world peace sounds great. Here's the deal. It was completely ineffective. Almost every nation on the earth signed it, 1928. Within a decade, World War II broke out, the deadliest war in the history of the world. Peace is hard to come by and impossible to maintain in this world. Listen, but not in this kingdom. This is a different kingdom Jesus is speaking of. This is a spiritual kingdom. Sin is the great problem. Christ came to conquer sin, and he came to bring peace with God. That's the kingdom that we're a part of. We have a blessing. We have joy. We have happiness. Congratulations. You've been given peace with God. That's the kingdom you've been called into, and now you are being called and sent as a peacemaker. Again, This is not personality, okay? This is not someone who just sweeps things under the rug and brings peace. This is spiritual. There's a spiritual aspect to this. This is what Paul shows us in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are peacemakers. We're ambassadors of peace. We come with a message of peace. We come telling people a spiritual aspect. You can be reconciled to God. And Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, we don't view anybody according to the flesh. We see everybody through the eyes of the Spirit that their greatest need Is there an enemy of God if they're not in Christ? And so we come with this message of peace. Be reconciled to God. He's saying congratulations. 
You have peace with God. You are a son, a daughter of God. Now go and share this message of peace. A disciple is a peacemaker. And finally, number seven, a disciple is persecuted. Last one this morning. A disciple is persecuted. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 and verse 10, the same blessing. The only one that he does twice. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You belong in this spiritual kingdom when you are persecuted. Blessed are you. Congratulations, you're being persecuted for Christ. That's exactly what Jesus says. And it's interesting that he puts persecution right after being a peacemaker. Those don't seem to go one after another to us. Because our assumption can be, who hates a peacemaker, you know? Who would persecute someone trying to bring peace? Well, this world would. And Satan would. He hates that we bring peace with God. Because part of bringing peace is diagnosing the problem. And when we say the problem is sin, and when we call sin, sin, that offends people. They don't like being called sinners. But they can't be reconciled to God unless they mourn and grieve their sin and they're poor in spirit. So we have to be good ambassadors and speak the truth. And when we do, we are persecuted. Look, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, I do not think you will ever find the biblical doctrines of sin and the world put more perfectly or precisely anywhere in Scripture than in just these two Beatitudes. The doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the world put together perfectly. Peacemakers are persecuted. Christians are becoming reacquainted with persecution. And this is not a bad thing. It's a blessing, Jesus says. This is part of being in the kingdom. This is part of being his disciple. It's the only one he doubles down on in verses 11 and 12 when when he says, not only are you going to be persecuted, you're going to be reviled. You're going to be hated. They're going to utter all kinds of evil against you. And look at verse 10 and 11. This is not because of us. It's for righteousness sake. It's on his account. We don't go looking for persecution. It's because we're faithful peacemakers that this happens to us. And the temptation can be, if we're persecuted, to think we're doing something wrong. And Jesus teaches us, discipleship 101, you're going to be persecuted and you are blessed. This is a part of being my disciple. If they hated him, they're going to hate us. The ESV study Bible says this, God is pleased when his people show that they value him above everything in the world. And this happens when they courageously remain faithful amid opposition for righteousness sake. Courageously remain faithful. That's the call. We don't have to go looking for persecution. All we have to do is courageously Remain faithful. This is life in the kingdom. 
This is a core part. Jesus is after our hearts. He's making this pronouncement to his disciples. Eight core promises for those who are disciples of Jesus. This is what it means to follow him. This is our inheritance. This is what it means to live inside the kingdom of God. This is who we are as Christians. We are the poor in spirit. We are those who mourn. We are meek. We are hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are merciful. He's given us a new heart. We are peacemakers. And we endure persecution. This is where Jesus begins. So when someone becomes a Christian and asks, what do I do? What does that mean? Who am I? What do I need to do now? I think our temptation is we say, well, read your Bible, pray, go to church, evangelize, memorize scripture, all good things, certainly things God calls us to do, but it's not where Jesus begins. Discipleship 101 is not go do these things. Discipleship 101 is congratulations. This is who you are in Christ. You are blessed. This is what I've done in you. This is the new heart. This is who you are. And if nothing else this morning, I want you to remember when someone asks you that question, what do I do now as a Christian? To turn to Matthew 5 and you tell them, congratulations. This is who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that this is who we are in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work you've done for every person here who is born again, who has hope and peace and joy. Peace with you, God. We give you thanks. We give you all the glory in our hearts, Lord. We say praise be to God who has done this work inside of us. And for every person here who is aware this morning that their hearts are desperately sick, come Holy Spirit. You blow, you come wherever you want. Come this morning and give them new hearts. May they be blessed today by becoming a believer in Christ and entering the kingdom of God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.